Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. Oh, I'm at the end of my message, but I want to be at the beginning, don't I? Okay. Awesome. Wow, we got a full house. Looks good. Great. Uh, so you're right on. It is Palm Sunday. Amen. And uh, it's the beginning of the week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, of course, this is the day that uh, Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem and thousands upon thousands of people greeted him as he came. And uh, you know the story, they, they, um, they spread out blankets and uh, palm branches on the road and they shouted this term, Hosanna. We were actually singing about it this morning, Hosanna. Uh, Hosanna is a special term of respect given to somebody who saves and rescues. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Awesome. So on that day, Hosanna was said with celebration that Messiah, the Savior of Israel, had come. And so we have a message all about Palm Sunday. And uh, my title this morning is called Christ in the Crowd. We're going to talk about Christ in the crowd, and so we're going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we're just going to jump into that message. So, Lord, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for each and every person who has come to our 10 a.m. service. Lord, for every person that is watching online right now, Lord, I pray that they would be able to identify themselves in the crowd, uh, in this message that we're talking about. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of it, we would have clarity in the midst of the chaos of our world and, and sometimes even within our own souls and emotions, Lord. I pray that you would just bring life by your Holy Spirit. God, as you peacefully enter into our situation and uh, invite us into a relationship with yourself, Jesus, we just thank you for this message in your name. Amen. Amen. So Palm Sunday, and we're talking about Christ in the crowd. Uh, I spent some time this week thinking about crowds and about all the different kinds of people and the different behavior that we have in crowds. And uh, I remember when I was in college, so this was 10 years ago, I feel like I'm getting old, 10 years ago in Bible college, Vanguard Bible college, uh, I decided to go to a rally with some college buddies. And there was a particular agenda that we were supporting at this rally. Uh, we were all marching down the streets of downtown Edmonton. There were easily several thousand of us in this procession or parade, protest, whatever you want to call it. A whole bunch of people were holding up signs, a bunch of messages on those signs. A lot of them were shouting. Some were screaming. I'll be honest, I'm not much of a screamer myself. I'm not. And so I was more casual smiling, celebrating what I believe to be a good cause. I was like, this is a good thing. It's all right that I'm in the crowd today. A lot of vehicles drove by, and uh, most of them were ignoring what was happening, but some of them honked their horns. A few of them let down their windows, gave us a thumbs up, a wave. Some of them shouted out the window. Some of them shouted contradictory messages to what we were doing as well. But for those that were excited, that made me all the more excited. And so I let out like an, an occasional, yeah, you know, yelling. And not too loud though, right? Just modestly. Um, but although I agreed with the heart of our gathering that day in this massive procession, I'll be honest and say that I disagreed with the approach of some of the people that I was walking with, not all of them, but I had watched a few of them share their message with anger, and uh, some of them even with what appeared to be like hatred and disdain for those who opposed them. And so I felt really mixed up 
walking in that crowd that day. Plus, it was the first time that I had ever done something like that before. And so driving to the meeting point that day to be involved with this procession, protest, whatever it was, I wondered, what is this going to look like? Are we going to flip over a few cars, you know, maybe break a few windows, light some buildings on fire? I, I don't know. Are we going to come up against a, a wall of police officers, maybe get pepper sprayed? I, I don't know. But none of that happened. None of that happened. Almost everybody in the crowd that day was well-behaved. But what did happen was we got into this argument with a group of students from the, uh, from the U of A, University of Alberta. And so there was a small, small group that showed up across the street to oppose what we were doing. And man, were they loud. They were loud, they were fierce, they were shouting at us. And one of my friends from college, his name was Joel, uh, this guy was a total activist. I'm not really that much of an activist, but Joel was like, come on, Pete, we're going across the street. And so I, I follow Joel across the street, and I'm smiling with my hands in my pocket at the mean people. Well, well, Joel argues, and he's like pointing his finger, and he's like debating, and it was super intense. And uh, that was my primary memory of that rally. Um, but overall, although there was great momentum in the crowd that day, you could feel the momentum, I knew as well that there was a lot more going on in the hearts and in the minds of people than I could see on the surface. And maybe there wasn't only one agenda. You show up to something like that and you think there's a primary one agenda. Well, there wasn't. Even on the agreeing side, there were all sorts of different perspectives and opinions and behaviors within the crowd that day. And of course, there was the crowd across the street that was opposing us. But to me, that is typical of crowds. To me, that is typical of crowds. But I also believe that that's typical of people. That's typical of all of us individually as well. If I could give you my central thought for this message, what I want to say is that a crowded city is much the same as a crowded soul, filled with varying opinions and desires. But the good news for us this morning, and this is where we're going to land, is that it's into such places and such people that Jesus peacefully enters, inviting each one to place their faith in him. And so that's where we're going. Right now, we're just going to turn our focus to Jesus, and uh, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 19 and verses 28 to 40. You can follow along on your phone if you like. Or it's going to come up on the screen or in your Bible. The translation that I'm going to be reading from is the Passion Translation. I like this one. Okay, so beginning in the, the second part of verse 28, this is what it says. It says, Jesus headed straight for Jerusalem, and when he arrived at the stables of Aniah near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead saying, when you enter the next village, you will find tethered there a young donkey's colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone stops you and asks, what are you doing? Just tell them this. It is needed for the Lord. The two disciples entered the village and found the colt exactly like Jesus had said. And while they were untying it, the owners confronted them and they asked, what are you doing? The disciples replied, we need this donkey for the Lord. And after they brought the colt to Jesus, they placed their prayer shawls on its back, and Jesus rode it as he descended the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, and as he rode toward the city, people spontaneously threw their prayer shawls like a carpet on the path in front of him. 
And as soon as he got to the bottom of the Mount of Olives, the crowd of his followers shouted with a loud outburst of ecstatic joy over the mighty wonders of power that they had witnessed. They shouted over and over, highest praises to God for the one who comes as king in the name of the Lord. Heaven's peace and glory from the highest realm now comes to us. Some Jewish leaders who stood off from the procession said to Jesus, Teacher, order your followers at once to stop saying these things. And Jesus responded, Listen to me. If my followers were silenced, the very stones would break forth with praise. Wow, what a text. All right, so there are many things that we could talk about with this passage of scripture. It is so rich with meaning, but what I want to do is continue the focus on the crowd present that day. Uh, I believe that, that was, this was a diverse crowd with many perspectives and many purposes all in the midst of what was going on. And so at a glance, we're led to believe that everybody is celebrating, and certainly those that are following the procession behind Jesus, they are. They are celebrating. It's a parade, and it's leading towards a party. Why was that? Why was the whole city in an uproar? It's because it was the time of Passover. It was the time of Passover. Even yesterday on the calendar I have hanging on my wall, it says Passover begins on it. But this is a Jewish tradition that dates back to the time of Moses, who led Israel's ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. And in Egypt, all those many years ago, uh, God's judgment was coming against the Egyptians because Pharaoh refused to let God's people go free. How many of you know God wants his people to be free? God wants his people to go free. And so judgment was coming upon every Egyptian family, and every firstborn son of the Egyptians was to die in the middle of the night. Some of you are saying, that's terrible. It's brutal. Now, none of Israel's sons died because they were told to do this one important thing in order to be saved. What they had to do was they had to kill a lamb, an innocent lamb without defect, and they were to place its blood over the doorposts of their house. And the angel of death, upon seeing the blood, would pass over, and judgment would pass over that home and that household because of the blood on that door. Now, this is a bit of an aside. I mean, we could talk about Easter right now, but what a picture! So powerful, awesome. How many of you know that Jesus represents the innocent lamb that is killed and whose blood is placed on the door of every home so that in that act of substitution and punishment upon the lamb, death and judgment pass over the family that's inside. This is, this is powerful. Spiritually speaking, when I apply the blood of Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, to my heart and to my household, and I teach my children to do the same, judgment passes over my house. And just so you know, this is kind of a neat thought as well. Jesus represents the firstborn. Jesus represents the firstborn. He's the firstborn son of God who took the punishment for sin, paid the price so that justice would be satisfied and God's anger would subside. And so I say that to say that in Jerusalem, it was Passover. Remember, it was Passover. Thousands of pilgrims filled the city um, of 
Israel, at Jerusalem, the city of praise, to celebrate that God's judgment had passed over and they were free to worship him. Nobody would have suspected that this exact thing was about to happen with Jesus. Can anybody say ironic, amazing, powerful? Jesus is coming into the city as the Passover lamb. But these people are still living a narrative that they had learned 1,500 years earlier from Moses. Now, I want to paint a picture for you. I I really want you to consider the setting in Jerusalem that day. But you can imagine families roasting large pots of lamb with bitter herbs and and making unleavened bread similar to the way that their ancestors have do. The smells of food would have been filling the streets and wafting out of every house. And many of the Jews would have practiced that ancient tradition of actually placing the blood over the door of the home to remember God's mercy upon them in delivering them from slavery. Now, most of them would have simply been doing what they had always done. This was tradition. This was their narrative. This is what Moses had taught them to do. Maybe some of them would have heard about Jesus, but we can't say for sure that they were willing to change over to this new way, to follow this new Messiah. I mean, was Jesus really better than their ancestor Moses? That's brought up in the Gospels as well amongst the Jewish people. But identifying those in the crowd that day, I want to talk about several different groups that I see within the crowd. First group I want to talk about is the curious. The curious. In the crowds of people that make up our own community, there are people who have traditions. There are people that have their own story. Uh, they ha- they're, they're following that story. And, and what happens in this story is Jesus comes into the city and everybody is disrupted from Passover preparation. And there's this idea of a coming savior, a, a, a Messiah. Um, Israel's prophets had gone silent, however, for 400 years before Jesus was born. And so you can imagine the mix of feelings in these people. There there was hope, desire, longing, but it was all mixed up with weariness and disappointment because those prophecies hadn't yet happened. Or so they thought. Was prophecy being played out before their eyes? I don't know. Maybe the prophets were wrong. Maybe they weren't. Or maybe it didn't have to do with all the stories of coming Messiah, but there were thousands of people who had heard about a miracle that had had taken place several days earlier. Who was here for church last Sunday? Remember what Pastor Greg talked about. He, he talked about a man named Lazarus who had died, and several years later, or several days later, rather, Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. Jesus says, roll the stone away, and out from the grave, resurrected to new life, comes Lazarus. I mean, come on, is this pointing towards Easter? This is powerful. And so those who were curious were saying, who is Jesus? Who has the power of resurrection? Only God could do that. Some believe that Lazarus was in the procession. He was following right behind Jesus. And so mixed mixed with messages of Messiah, we have a walking, talking miracle. His name is Lazarus, and the rumor mill is fired up, man. I mean, people are talking about it. How do you contain that? The story has made its way into the crowd. In my own life, uh, church family, I've gotten really stirred up about things. I've gotten really curious about things. I'm somebody who follows politics very closely, and uh, especially in 2020, in the early part of 2021, I was really following the American election. 
And uh, I watched videos, and I was reading articles, and I listened to commentaries, and I was listening to Christians and prophets provide opinion on the truth. This is what's happening. I was so curious. God, where are you? What are you doing in the midst of America right now? Uh, That's just one example. I haven't followed all the buzz about COVID-19 too closely, although let's be honest, it's kind of hard to escape it, isn't it? Uh, But I've more so stayed quiet and tried to go about living my life peacefully in the midst of this pandemic. But oh wow, this pandemic has people talking. People are talking, and not only in our own city or in Canada, but all over the world. Doctors, economists, politicians, religious leaders, everybody's claiming a stake in what is true. And for me, in little old Mournville, I, I just feel like a man in the crowd pulled this way and that way. I feel the momentum. Rowdy people are pushing their agendas. Some people are standing back staring. Others are ignoring. Many are arguing. I'm just trying to mind my own business, looking for a mask that doesn't give me headaches. (laughs) But in the midst of this, I'm curious, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Lord, I don't get it. And if I could be honest, I'm like the second group of people that I believe were in Jerusalem that day, and uh, I believe they were confused. So we have the curious and we have the confused. You see, like all crowds in our own culture, there were smaller pockets in Israel's crowd that had alternative perspective and purpose. I mentioned that thousands upon thousands of pilgrims are there for Passover. They have a religious routine. Many of them are needing to rush to the temple to buy an animal without fault or defect so that they could sacrifice it to atone for their sins. These are not bad people that don't know Jesus very well. They're not bad. In fact, they're good. But they have no idea that their entire way of life is about to be flipped upside down No need for lambs, no need for sacrifice, no need for cleansing ritual. A new way, a new life. Not a new religion, but a new relationship with the lamb, the perfect lamb of God. How many of you know that would be confusing for a while? Your whole life is about to be tipped on edge. Then in the crowd as well, you had these people that were called zealots. Anybody ever heard of the zealots? We have zealots. If you look up the word zealot, the definition says this. It says a person who is fanatical and uncompromising in their pursuit of religious, political, or other ideals. And so the root word of zealot is what? It's zeal. Zeal is the root word. And when you think of zeal, you think of passion, devotion, fire, fervor, zealot. Wow. And some of you, when I say that, you get really excited about that because you're like, oh, like I'm passionate, I'm on fire, fervor, zeal. But the truth is, is about zeal, you can err on the side of extremism if you're not careful with your zeal. The zealots were a group of Jewish extremists who believed that the Messiah who was coming would be this mighty warlord who would help them overthrow the Romans. You see, in Jesus' time, Israel was subject to the Romans, People felt pressed down, they felt persecuted, they felt overtaxed by Rome, and so there was this battle cry for for justice. And maybe even like our own culture, our own community and crowd, uh, most people are like, let's just try to make the best of it. And then there are others in the crowd that are like, no, let's fight. Let's fight. Let's push back. 
Many of the Jews would have remembered a story in the Old Testament about a young guy named Jehu. Anybody ever heard of uh, Jehu? He's uh, talked about in 2 Kings. And so what happens in, in uh, 2 Kings and Jehu's story is the people were coming up against uh, an evil king named Ahab, and he had this uh, evil queen named Jezebel. And so what they do is they anoint this young guy, Jehu, to be their king and their commander. And this is seriously one of the craziest stories in the Bible. Everybody's going to go home and read it, I know it. But, uh, but Jehu goes on an absolute killing rampage. He, he's shooting people. He throws Jezebel out of the palace window. And dogs are licking up her blood. He tracks down all the brothers and the cousins and the extended family, and he slaughters them and throws them in a pit. And then more than just the families of the evil king and queen, Jehu invites all the people in Israel to come and to worship the false god Baal. Now, this is a bit of a tricky story. He does this, and then he waits to see who shows up. And when all the Baal worshipers arrive, he traps them, thousands of them, inside the temple, and he slaughters them. He creates this absolute bloodbath, and then try not to laugh, although it's kind of funny. What he does is he then takes the temple to the false god Baal and he reconverts it into a communal outhouse. So <laughs> this guy was this guy was nuts. This guy was a force. God used this beast of a man to cleanse Israel from idolatry. Now listen to this. This is 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, and this describes Jehu coming into the city to be anointed. This is what it says. It says, They quickly took their cloaks and they spread them under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and they shouted, Jehu is king. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. You feel like we just read that? The people who heralded Jesus spread their cloaks on the road in the same fashion. But there's a key difference. A champion like Jehu would have come on a large and powerful stallion because kings uh, who had achieved their conquest would enter a city on a large horse as a symbol of strength. But that's not what Jesus did. Do you catch the difference? Jesus came into Jerusalem not on a war horse who had seen battle and blood, but on the foal of a donkey. We're not even talking about a full-grown donkey. We're talking about a a young donkey who had never been ridden, peaceful, humble, unassuming. Let me tell you, Jesus never came to curse the Romans. Jesus never came to curse the Romans. His purpose wasn't political, but it was primarily personal. And that's the same in our world too. His purpose isn't primarily political, it's personal. How confusing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Save us from the Romans, Lord. But Jesus was different than what they had expected. And I just want to let you know something about me. Jesus is sometimes different than I expect. He has a different disposition. He has a different demeanor. He's not forceful. He doesn't exert himself on me. But what Jesus does is he draws me in and he invites me. Wow. He's not looking for exterior display of strength and valor, but he he so lovingly and perseveringly goes to work on my heart and he changes me from the inside out. And let me tell you, church, it's confusing sometimes. It's so confusing. 
And at the same time, it's wonderful. But this is how God works. And I've come to realize that Jesus is not interested in the things that I think he is. He's saying, let's not focus on that issue, but let's focus on you. Let's focus on your heart and what I'm asking you to do. And so many times over in the midst of this year with the pandemic, with America, with our own nation, with stuff happening in my family, I'm baffled, I'm embarrassed, and all at the same time, I'm amazed to discover that God is so much different than me. And he's doing a far better work. And so I just want that to hang in the room. I want that to hang in your spirits this morning. Let's keep going. So the third group, we've talked about those who are curious, those who are confused. Third group, I believe, was contrary. Contrary. And you're going to find contrary people in a crowd. You're going to find contrary people in a church sometimes. There were people in Jerusalem that day who were actually only there to take advantage of other people. They weren't there to celebrate Jesus. They weren't there to celebrate Passover. As Jesus makes his way into the city, uh, I'm not going to read this part, but he goes directly to the temple and he begins driving out those who are selling animals and religious paraphernalia. It says in verse 46 of the same chapter we're reading, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Let me tell you something about Passover. This, this blew my mind this week. This is incredible. I learned that those who were selling in the temple were selling animals for sacrifice at a profit 20 times the amount that they normally would. 20 times the amount. Let me put that in perspective for you. That reminded me of a story. That's like when you go to the airport and uh, you've, you've given them all your bags, they've searched you, you're clear to get on a plane, and then they escort you to this tiny, this, this room where you're now trapped, and lo and behold, there's a Starbucks. There's a Starbucks in that secret place, and you're like, oh, thank God, there's a Starbucks. But then to your absolute horror, your favorite latte is three times more expensive than it would have been had you picked one up on the way to the airport. And so what do you do? You sit back and you bitterly sip your $10 latte. <laughs> True story, that's happened to me more than once. But church, this was happening in Israel. This was happening in Israel. Everybody, oh, let's go down to Jerusalem for Passover. And they go to the temple. We didn't bring a lamb, didn't want to carry it all this way. 20 times the amount <laughs> to buy your, your animal. But Jesus says this temple will be a place of prayer. He's saying church is not going to be a place of personal gain or fame, but it's going to be a place of intimacy with me. That's what Jesus is saying. And to make matters worse, the religious leaders are actually in on this corruption. They allowed those merchants into the temple to take advantage. The only thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite wanted was control. They wanted to control the crowds by controlling the religion. Control for them meant power, and they were furious that Jesus might try to take away that control. In the text we just read, uh, the religious elite, they say, Jesus, tell your disciples to stop, trying to stop their praise. The same story is in John's gospel, and these guys say, see, the whole world has gone after him. They're frustrated. They're angry. I mentioned that earlier on, we talked about it last Sunday, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Did you know that the religious people wanted to kill Lazarus? 
Did you know that? Verse 10 of John chapter 12, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And then at the end of the chapter we read, uh, Luke 19, it says the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill, in this case, Jesus. You know, when it comes to these religious leaders, I never try to relate to them. Never. Because I was taught on the flannel graph in Sunday school when I was a kid, these are bad guys. These are bad guys. You do not want to relate to the religious Pharisees. But when I consider the root of their problem, that problem is sometimes in me. They did not want things to change. Not at all. And within the crowds of our own community and even in our church, there may be people who have been stuck in a mindset and in a lifestyle for years and years and maybe even decades and maybe it even looks like a religious one. Whoa, that's crazy. And when Jesus comes and says, I am going to topple your tower, <laughs> there's a part of us that goes, no. No, Jesus, you are not going to touch that. In fact, I'm going to kill you, Jesus. Don't touch that. Don't touch my stuff. And of course, these religious people thought they were right. And the people even were deceived and thought they were right. And these were the most pampered and prestigious people in the crowd that day. But they were contrary. They were contrary to Christ. And I've recognized this year, I just want you to take away that theme, that it's been a confusing year. It's been a year where I've been packed with curiosity and confusion. And then at times, sometimes when things just don't go my way, I realize I'm kind of contrary too. And I get mad at God. And sometimes I'm 1,000% convinced that I'm right, but I can be wrong. I can be oh so wrong. There's just one more group of people that I want to talk about, and then we're going to bring this all together. I mentioned the curious, the confused, and the contrary. The last group that I want to talk about, I'm calling them the convinced. The convinced. And to clarify, I struggled with this point a little bit because I was like, Although they were convinced, these weren't perfect people. And then the Holy Spirit whopped me upside the head and said, since when do you have to be perfect to be convinced? <laughs> since when do you have to be perfect? Pastor Greg mentioned Lazarus' sister, Martha, last week. She was religious. She was a little bit weird. Um, but I'm betting that she was convinced of Jesus' power and authority. And I think she was in the procession. I think she was following him into the city. And the disciples got it wrong a lot. They missed the point of Jesus' teachings. Jesus was frustrated at their lack of faith. They argued about who among them was the greatest. Jesus said things that challenged them to their very core. There's this one story, we won't go into it, but um, Jesus talks about believing in him and going so far as to say that you will, you'll need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And of course, we understand that analogy today. We're thinking communion. We're thinking of that analogy and whatnot. But people were like, oh my goodness, what is he talking about? Eat my flesh and drink my blood and whatnot. And it says many of his followers turned away from him. Not the 12, but Jesus thinned the crowds that followed. Jesus sometimes thinned the crowds. But in that story, he turns to his 12 and he says, will you also leave me? And Simon Peter answered, I was joking in the first service. I don't know what it is, but every time I preach, I have a Peter story from the Bible. It just, it just happens. But Simon Peter answered and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so we are hard on these disciples sometimes, but we have to remember that these guys left their jobs behind. Many of them had lost their livelihoods. They had experienced hunger and thirst, and they had walked hundreds of miles with Jesus. They had been through storms on the sea. And in the coming days, they would watch their Lord and their master be taken away and beaten up and crucified. And of course, they would run and they would scatter but what's amazing about these disciples is in the coming days, they somehow land in the right place. They land in an upper room. They, they're praying together, and eventually what happens is Pentecost. They're praying together, and the Holy Spirit comes. And so, yes, we are talking about weak and afraid people here, but in the midst of their grief and their fear and their persecution and their misunderstanding and their trouble, they made it. They made it. And I believe they were convinced of Jesus' identity and their need for him. And now in moving towards my conclusion, here's what I want you to know. Although these words are typical of crowds, they represent crowds of people, these words represent me. These words represent you. Church, I have a crowded soul. I have a crowded soul and I have conflicting emotion and desire let me tell you about it. I'm curious. I want to know. And I look at God and I look at our world sometimes and I go, what's going on? And I, I want to know the answer. But then I'm confused. And I get really bent out of shape when God doesn't do what I think he should do. What are you doing, Jesus? Why are you riding a donkey, man? And that confusion leads sometimes to anger where I become contrary. And I begin saying, no, not now. No, I don't want that, God. And I begin opposing his work in my life. And then all at the same time, in the midst of my chaos, in the midst of my conflict, in the midst of my storming sea of emotions, I am like Peter. Jesus, where else would I go? You have the words of life. Where am I going to go? There's a story in Matthew 14 where Peter walks on water. You know that story. Jesus is out on the water and Peter's in a boat and Peter steps out of the boat and begins walking toward Jesus and then he catches sight of the big wind and the waves and he begins to sink and Jesus reaches out and grabs his hand, pulls him up again. You know, life can feel like that sometimes. Maybe your life feels like that this morning, like a sea of chaos, and everything is in turmoil, relationships, finances, health in your body. I just did a funeral for a 60-year-old lady that believed that she would get healed, and she died. And so sometimes in our relationship with God, it, it feels like desire and defeat all at the same time. That's a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? Where you feel desire and you feel defeat, being in a large crowd can feel like that. You know a crowd is sometimes called a sea of people? It's a sea of people. It's noisy, it's cluttered, it's full of distraction, maybe even dangerous. You know that people can get lost in a crowd? People can get trampled and crushed by a crowd? But then what's so amazing about a crowd is a crowd can do the most wonderful thing. A crowd can join together in praise. And when Jesus comes into a crowded city or into a crowded soul, I want to let you know that there's an opportunity for praise. But which part is leading? I think the part of me that's convinced 
needs to lead the other parts. Because I'm curious, I'm confused, I'm contrary, and yet all boiled up inside of me in this year, in my life, in my family, I'm convinced. I know who Jesus is. And all those parts of me come together to praise the Lord, and they are loud, and they are jubilant, and they are excited, and they are praise, and there's other parts of me, stop it, that's too loud, Jesus hasn't done anything yet, no, I'm going to praise the Lord, right? Church, it's easy. I'm going to invite the band to come right now, because we're going to end in a couple minutes with a song, but it's easy to focus on everything in your life that isn't going well, and it's easy to do that. We want, we naturally want to look at what's missing, and we want to look at what's not good, but what I love about Palm Sunday is that all eyes were on Jesus and there was praise. And I don't know what you're going through, but I just want to ask you the question, are your eyes on Jesus? Are your eyes fixed on him? It really comes down to faith and trust. Will you follow Jesus? Will you praise him when there are so many things about you and your world that are unresolved? Jesus is not going to beat his way into your life like a warrior on a stallion. Jesus, take control. No, it's not going to be like that. But he, if you'll invite him, will come in humble and peaceful, riding on a donkey. And next week is Easter, church family, and we know that the ultimate victory happened in an event that looked like an absolute disaster. This is the way. This is how God works. He's working on you. He's working in your chaos. He's working in your crowded soul. And in the midst of all of the questions and the unresolved and, and the confusion and the parts of you that are contrary, will you praise Jesus? The part of you that's convinced and says, I'm going to give him my all. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And so with that said, I don't know if there's anybody new in the room but maybe you're like one of those people in the crowd that are saying, I just don't even know what's going on. I see Jesus trying to come into my life. I don't really know him. <laughs> I have a lot of questions for him. I've experienced brokenness. I'm just trying my best. But I know that I need to invite him in to become my Lord and my Savior. Is there anybody here that says, I'd like to do that for the first time? This is it. This is your opportunity. Don't miss it. Or maybe you'd like to say, I'd like to recommit my life to him because I feel like I've, I've gotten lost in the crowd. And if there's anybody online right now, you're watching this message, there's actually a button on our live stream that you can click and it says, I would like to give my life to Jesus. And I just believe that as you do, that peaceful, humble Savior will come into your life and there will be assurance. There will be a new confidence. There will be a new life and suddenly you'll have clarity. And so just go ahead and click that button if you'd like to give your life to Jesus today. We're gonna close with a song and, and by way of altar call and rededication, I just want you to sing this song with all your might, because it's Palm Sunday. Let's praise Jesus. And so why don't you stand, and then we'll close in prayer together.
Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Church, would you sing this with me? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. <laughs> Thanks for that, man. Awesome.
Amen. Well, church, I just bless you with clarity this week that you would be convinced more than ever before of Jesus and his power and his authority and his Holy Spirit alive and active in your life. I just bless you in Jesus' name, and I pray that as you go out this week into the crowds at your work, on the streets, and different social media, that you would have a part in convincing others that are confused or contrary or curious, we're coming up on Easter. Let's fill the house. Amen? So that others would be convinced and have clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.